Welcome back to this week's talk evidence that we're recording on the 6th of May. As always, we're trying to give you an update on what's happening with coronavirus, the evidence that's building all the time, uh, even though that might be quite murky sometimes. This week, we are going to be looking at the natural history of the disease and a little bit about how patients are involved. To do that, I'm joined, as always, by our two favourite EBM nerds. First of all, Helen MacDonald, who's a resting GP and UK research editor for the BMJ. Welcome back to the podcast, Helen. Hi, Duncan. And Carl Hennigan, who is pro- director for the director for Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. You forgot who I am already. I, uh, <laughs> You've got lockdown fever. <laughs> I'm trying to rationalise all the things that you're doing, just making it into a soundbite, and it's just it's just not happening. EBM nerd. There we go. EBM nerd. <laughs> Chief EBM nerd. Um, so that's Carl. Carl, in your in your EBM nerdery, each week you've been talking to us a little bit about the death data. So um, what's going on this week? Boris Johnson says we've passed the peak. Is he right? Can we tell? Yeah, um, it's pretty much more of the same this week with the Office for National Statistics data comes out. But remember, that's about going back about 10 days ago. So it comes out on Tuesday and looks back in time. But when, when we say we're looking at the peak, I think there's a multitude of bits of data that allow us now to say we're well past the peak. If you look at the hospital data on deaths, the peak of the death there was the 8th of April. We can also look at the admission data, which we've got access to, and that peaked on about the 2nd of April. All the other measures show that they're now trending down. And particularly the admission data is really helpful because we've now come down from a peak, as I said, on the 2nd of April, they've come down by about 70%, and we've been low 1,000 admissions a day. All of that information is reassuring, and that's going to help us when we come out of lockdown. And uh, hopefully that's what we can talk about next week, when uh, what this means, and maybe what uh, the fears of, of coming out of lockdown too early mean as well. Um, Great. Well, thanks for that update, Carl. So each week in Talk Evidence, we try and give you uh, something to start or to stop doing. And Helen, you've been looking this week at severity of infection amongst households. I have. Um, We've had a lot of drugs in our list and I wanted us to spread our wings and look at other things. Um, There was an interesting analysis article published on the BMJ today, 6th of May, asking for simple measures to reduce the spread and severity of infection among household contacts of COVID-19. And it's written by a primary care academic, Paul Little from Southampton and colleagues. And I picked it out So I think there's growing momentum behind the idea that we have to pay close attention to what's going on in the community now, because that's where most of the infection is. So the argument, and this is a debate paper, so it's making an argument rather than giving us research. What it's saying is we basically want to try and reduce COVID. Most people with COVID are at home, so it makes sense to focus there. And a lot of them live with other people. 
we've got evidence that healthcare workers have higher rates of infection. And we think that's because they have a lot of contact with people who have COVID and they take in bigger doses of infecting virus because they're close, physically close to people with infection. And the same, therefore, may well be true of people who live with people with COVID. Healthcare workers need PPE protection to try and reduce infection to themselves. But that those kind of measures aren't practical for household contacts. So this paper is looking at what are the alternatives. We don't have a lot of good evidence um, to say clearly what people should do and people's circumstances in their household vary enormously. But what they're suggesting is if we use the precautionary principle, are there simple things that people could think of themselves um, to try and protect their family members? So thinking about Within your circumstances, how might you isolate the infected household member insofar as you can? Are there infection control measures that you could take, additional cleaning, for example? Could you consider using distancing or masks? Um, And even simple things like opening the windows to try and increase the ventilation through your property. I thought that was quite a nice consider starting, um, particularly as we um, perhaps look towards the future and what comes next away from um, the focus on hospitals. And it's interesting looking around the world. In China, one of their, their key things to tackle the infection and get their, their rate down was, was actually isolating people out of the household into these big treatment centres. So uh, it's definitely been on the minds. Carl, what do you think to that? Well, look, I think there's something really interesting. I want to go slightly left field because I've heard this term precautionary principle raised an awful lot so far. And I'm not sure if people are using it in the right manner because what precautionary principle states is when an activity raises the threat of harm to human health or the environment, Precautionary measures should be taken even if some cause and effects of rate relationships are not fully established scientifically. So this is about things that are toxic in the environment. You think might cause cancer, might cause a problem. The question is you raise the bar for research and you raise the bar for the cause and effect and you say, well, look, we should remove them from the environment. But we seem to be then applying that to this precautionary principle to non-pharmaceutical interventions, if you like, and saying, well, we should just do this as a caution. Now, I'm raising the question is I don't see that as the right way to use the precautionary principle. It's about generally removing things. What I think we're talking about is really trying to understand in the home setting whether we can actually reduce transmission. And the problem I have with this is there's no one-size-fits-all thinking of the size of houses, the ventilation, what, how many people are living in the house. It, it, it is, it's difficult for me to understand how we'll bring evidence to say, here's what we can do across that complete range of different environments. So I think what we do want is a range of thought processes about the built environment. Should there be minimum requirements, for instance, in terms of sizes of rooms? airspace, ventilation, and I'm particularly thinking about flats and environments where people are crowded in, They, I would look at them as the highest risk and think, what can we do differently in them settings? And Helen, that, that was an interesting point as well, because uh, you talked to Paul Glesview a little while ago, who talked about the, 
the dearth of evidence for, for some of these things. Um, so if people haven't heard that, they should go back and listen to that edition of, of Talk Evidence. Now, talking about what we've been talking about a few weeks ago, we were a bit obsessed with um, symptoms and the fact that what people might have when they have COVID uh, was quite uncertain. And so, Helen, you've been delving into this further and trying to find out a little bit about the, the natural history of this virus. Yes, this is something that's been puzzling me for a while. Um, as you know, I am a big fan of talking and also listening to other people's stories. And I think one of the things that's really invaluable in clinical practice is hearing people's stories of how their illness has unfolded from their perspective. So the symptoms and signs they had first, what might have developed in the middle and how they evolved um, or resolved or didn't. Um, so that's following the natural history of um, the disease. And natural history patterns are really important for diagnosis and for setting expectations and creating uh, safety nets uh, for patients. And we've talked about a wide range of symptoms on this show and blood results and risk factors. And a lot of that evidence come from large case series. Um, and most of it has allowed us to understand that this can be a multi-system disease. But the information in a way has been quite flat. So typically it's been about um, what people... Uh, have had when they were admitted to hospital for some reason and then what happened to them right at the end and little about the bits in between or the bits at the beginning. We also know that those data are limited by the amount of testing that's been going on and a poor description of the populations that they came from, particularly lacking a denominator. And I've not been aware of that much longitudinal information that's come out on symptoms and signs and results. And some of the questions I think that clinicians have, which are unanswered, relate to these things. So I've heard from primary care people asking things like, is a fever on week three of COVID or presumptive COVID okay? Is it true that there are different kind of stereotypes of COVID presentation? Um, there have been concerns from secondary care around whether the type of respiratory pattern um, that has developed in COVID patients is typical or not. Um, and then now we're starting to see people recovering from COVID and, and finding that they have ongoing bothersome symptoms and to what extent is that normal. And I decided to call upon Harlan Krumholtz, cardiologist at Yale, and talk with him a bit about um, natural history because I had been tipped off that he had thoughts on it. We've, we have learned a fair amount about the sort of early stage of the disease, the, the area where we're likely getting better denominators. I mean, people who are showing up for acute care and the illness doesn't just progress gradually over time, but that, that people can have sudden and rapid decompensation. They can appear to be doing well and then suddenly be hypoxic to an extraordinary extent. They can be on day five, six, seven, and appear to have no cardiac involvement. And on day nine, have a fulminant myocarditis. Uh, they can be weeks in and still have, be having trouble breathing. The tail of recovery for some people is quite long and can include fatigue, dyspnea, uh, it, not to mention the sequelae of the damage that might have been done during the acute illness if they've experienced myocardial damage that may persist. But in some cases, it seems to reverse. The other thing of note is that in the beginning, there was all this talk about it as a respiratory illness. But it's become evident to us that this is much more than that, that it can target almost any organ. Some of it seemingly directly, the ACE2 receptor is 
present in many places within the body. It's been described in, in, in vessels in the kidney and in the heart and the liver. Uh, it, so it can, it can show up uh, in many places. And then the immune response can damage almost any organ of the body. So what we're seeing is that this can be a disease that has manifestations of the cardiac system, of the hematologic system, of the coagulation system, of the hepatic system, gastrointestinal system, uh, in kidneys, the, the brain. It doesn't seem like anything uh, is unspared. Anything is protected from, from this response. So, you know, these are the things, these are the threads we're still trying to pull together. What we're missing still is how likely, who's at risk? When people do uh, have onset of these manifestations, what should we do about it? How can we mitigate it? And what can we tell them about what the future is likely to be like? All of these remain areas of, of great uncertainty. I think this is a good opportunity for us to reflect on, on what we've been advocating for a long time. I mean, people have talked about a learning health system forever. This is this idea that we don't have research on one side and clinical on the other, but we actually bring them together. We try to learn from every person coming through. We don't waste any experience. We get smarter every day. We get smarter with every patient who comes through. We put ourselves in a position so the next patient is in a better position than the last patient. We contribute to a collective wisdom that grows over time and, and doesn't make it so that you have to find the person in the hospital who's seen a bunch of something, but that whatever anyone has seen has contributed to knowledge that we can all tap into. And we can understand what people who look like this may experience. So it's not a matter of let's accumulate a thousand patients, let's create a fixed database. Let's start running some SAS runs. I mean, this is about dynamic research in the midst of uh, an interactive system. I've said this for, for a long time. I mean, you look at the tech companies. I mean, Amazon doesn't say, okay, let's collect data for three years. We'll send it to a crack unit at Oxford and ask them to work on it for a year, produce a few papers, and we'll have some journal clubs and spread it throughout Amazon to learn how to serve customers better. I mean, they, they, I mean that's absurd. Right, but but that's what we do in medicine. I mean, what, instead of saying every single data point that comes in needs to serve to make us better at predicting risk, better at understanding uh, outcomes. Well, we're Steers Roebuck. I mean, you know, we're Marks and Spencer. You know, we're we've been doing it this way for a long time, and you know, we know how to set up a bunch of shirts on the front end, and we know how to sell them. And you know, we're puzzled by this internet thing and figures it'll be a fad and go away. I mean, the whole medical research complex is inadequate to keep up with the information needs in ordinary times, alone in a pandemic time. And it's time for us to flip the switch on our mental models about how we should be working together, what we should be doing to produce knowledge, and the kind of knowledge that we need in order to help frontline clinicians and patients to make the right choices for themselves, given levels of uncertainty. And and it's, it's just that we've been locked in a paradigm for such a long time that it's hard to imagine it differently. But, but that's where something like this, a crisis like this, almost forces a reset. So I wasn't sure that I really had a clear picture after speaking to Harlan, um, except that he was quite clean on technology potentially as a solution. And there's been growing interest, um, particularly in symptom tracker apps, I think. And here, I guess the idea is that you're not relying on health systems collecting information at all. You're directly relying on patients and the public going one step back and taking you into their homes. And the largest study I'm aware of or project that's being run on this is out of London by a team, including Tim Spector. And I spotted an article published yesterday in Science, 5th of May, 
And their team appear to plan to track risk factors, herald symptoms, clinical outcomes and geographical hotspots. And whilst this seemed interesting, it seemed more of a public health tool than it did something that would help a jobbing clinician really understand the natural history. Carl, I want to come back to you, firstly to ask if you caught that paper in science and also just have your reflections on these two things, this kind of idea of real-time recording of symptoms and signs from clinical practice and what that might help us with and this use of apps in research. Is that something you've got any experience of or might be able to share insights on? So, um, I thought the conversation about natural history was really important, actually. One of the key components of what we do in healthcare is we want to make diagnoses, but we also want to risk stratify people, understand those that we can send home, those that we need to admit to the critical care units, and those that we just need to admit to a hospital bed. And so understanding that information is incredibly important. And where that starts with is having an understanding of the next 100 people who come into my emergency department, what potential proportion of them with certain features might have COVID. And that's really important to be able to do evidence-based medicine with diagnostics if you can understand the pretest probability. About four or five weeks ago, at the height of the pandemic, it might have been 40-50%. But as we've admissions have come down, as we said earlier, that proportion will come down and down. So then you having that real-time information, I think, would be incredibly helpful. But this disconnect between research and learning and clinical practice and doing is a real problem. I am with Harlan on this, that we need to connect the dots here, because I think for clinicians on the ground having that information would be very helpful. But how do we connect the dots? What is it that we're missing infrastructure or are we missing the kind of protocols to do it? Is it a coordination problem? Well, I think we're in the infancy. We're going there. But there are issues we, which we have to solve, aren't we? In a research study, we're de-anonymising patients. We're doing all of the ethics and all of that's coming into it. And then we get to clinical practice and we go, can we do this in real time? There are barriers. And so we've got to remove all of them barriers to being able to put this information in and then supply it back in a secure way that people can use for clinical practice. So this would be and, a good way to speak to the public about this problem because um, the public are very interested in the fact that we don't know a lot about COVID at the moment. But I guess they also have concerns in a usual care setting about their privacy and their confidentiality. So maybe this would be a useful story to tell that one of the reasons we can't do this at the moment is because we have all these barriers. Yeah and I think what we have to accept is when you step over the threshold of the hospital there are uncertainties that mean you should be participating in research. It's almost unethical not to be doing it that's my point and therefore if we get rid of these barriers people realise that healthcare is not just about developing vaccines and drug trials this piece of information, natural history, could just be as important as being able to triage people into the right places, be able to use our resources wisely and efficiently, know when we need to admit somebody to critical care unit, but also knowing when we can send them home. If we do that well, we'll have a much more efficient healthcare system and we won't get overwhelmed because we're waiting for the research paper to come out and help us out. The other interesting thing that's come out is we know that routine clinical care for patients has been quite 
disruptive. Um, but what about care for patients who are currently involved in ongoing research, particularly trials? Because we've heard some reports that that their experience has been disrupted and what are the implications for patients? And I spoke to Henry Stowcroft earlier today, who's one of the BMJ's patient editors. He also works for Cancer Research UK and I caught up with him to give us a quick update. So I think when the when the pandemic first hit, a lot of um, clinical cancer trials had to be paused or um, or, or suspend, recruitment was suspended. I think and, and in a lot of cases, heaven and earth has been moved to try and keep as many patients as possible on treatment, um, particularly those who are responding really well to drugs. But where there are treatments where I think the the, the agent in question, if, if one were taking that and happened to get COVID, that would pose a particular risk. Or in treatments where for example, the side effects could be quite severe and might require intensive care should anything go wrong. Those sorts of treatments were, were stopped. So although a lot of patients are able to carry on um, receiving trial uh, therapies on trials, a lot of, a lot of um, patients have had to, had to pause things. In addition to that, because trials have had to close to new recruitments or trials that have been in the process of being set up have had to, had to stop that set up a lot of trials aren't going ahead to new patients uh, new new recruits um, which as you can imagine causes a huge amount of anxiety among people going through current trans- uh, cancer treatments particularly for advanced cancer who basically face the prospect of, of of options they might have had down the line potentially being taken off off the table and that can be a really worrying and, and distressing thing and we've seen a lot of people in that situation really desperate to get research back up and running um, as soon as as soon as possible and as soon as practical so that those options can be back on the table for them when the pandemic hit, a lot of guidelines had to be drawn up incredibly quickly. Um, and I think it's it's fair to say that in that initial phase, patient involvement around those guidelines wasn't as, as good as it could have been. Um, but that that's, I mean, part, partly a function of just the speed with, with which it all had to happen. But also just, I think, a, a sort of fairly re- regrettable state that often patient involvement in that sort of thing is is one of the first things that gets dropped when when things need to happen quickly. Um, but I think because those guidelines have been iterated, I think there's been a lot of scope for feedback to be captured. I know there are you know, regular dialogue between between charities and the NHS to make sure that concerns have been flagged. One example that was told to me the other day was um, a particular guideline talking about lung cancer, whereas in actual fact it meant cancer that had spread to the lungs. So those kind of refinements get captured and built into new versions of the guidelines. I think the aspiration from here on is that there, there, there will be more patient involvement as guidelines get refined and, and, and new guidelines get drawn up, particularly around as the lockdown eases, as services are recovered, as services get going again. Um, and I hope that um, there's a lot more patient involvement around this sort of stuff. I am not aware of any um, recovered from COVID patient networks yet in operation. I may be wrong, they may be out there, but um, th- I think a lot of these things will have to be clinicians who who know of suitable or interested, should I say, um, and available patients who, who are willing to, to chip in. But yeah, I think that's going to be one of the challenges is, is, is finding people who have lived experience of, of, of being you know, affected by COVID um, to help to help be involved in, in COVID specific guidelines. It was sad to hear from Henry about the trial disruption that might be facing particularly cancer patients. But on the PPI uh, front now, 
as an optimist, I was quite hopeful to hear Henry say that it's not too late and patients and clinicians will hopefully uh, find ways to discover each other um, and involve each other in their work. Yeah, I thought there were lots of interesting points I'm aware of, just not the sort of big research, right down to students, to PhD projects, to masters. There's a whole swathe of research on hold. And I think that presents difficulties for people. But I, I, I was also interested in this issue of rapidity and where do you put your evidence to have the most impact? And And I think there are interesting issues that are going to come out of this in terms of how do you manage the information flow? And so, for instance, our work, we've really tried to help many of the media and the journalists understand what's happening, particularly with issues like the deaf data, but the evidence. And I think this is going to be an incredibly important moment in the architecture of research and how it's disseminated and published. I don't have the answers yet. And uh, I'm going to pinch a line from Chris Whitty, who was the chief medical officer. He had an excellent lecture on the Gresham College website. And he said, look, I want to say everything that I say now, if you come back in six months time, a lot of it is going to be different. (laughs) And I thought that's such a good line. I'm going to use that more often. It gets me out of trouble in lots of ways. But I think I, I, I don't have the answer here, but I think we now need a debate about how how do we get evidence to where it most makes a difference? How should end users, the public, interact with that evidence? And we had a great example where Healthwatch took some of our information and then rewrote it. And I just said to him, look, this is Creative Commons. You can rewrite it. What's most important is it gets out there. And it helps people understand the decisions that they have to make or are being made on their behalf. So in other words, Carl, you're saying you're debating whether if you're a researcher and you have this evidence, do you put your effort into helping the media to understand it because they are the channel of dissemination or in, or to some extent, do you look to other channels that just speak directly to patients or the public or whoever you think is your end user, for want of a better word? So I'm going to get this in. Academic currency is one of the problems in that currently most of our currency is about getting in a journal with a high impact factor and then that referring back to me with all sorts of metrics which do not often reflect that actually they're getting to the end user. I would like to see a change, a sea change in what matters in research is the more you get to the end users, the more your information and evidence is understood, the more impact you're having. The more titles you get, the more promotions you get. Yeah, I, I... I, I just think there's something really impressive about being able to take the research and really communicate it in a way that the end users can understand it. And so in doing that, you also get feedback of whether it makes a difference, what's important. And I think one thing we have solved is the flow of information in this outbreak. There's been more published than ever before in a rapid way. Now we have to start to make sense of it, of how do we distill it and make what matters out there and discard quite a lot of it, which is pretty poor quality, and some of it is indeed just rubbish. And we have to work a strategy out for that. Do you think it's a researcher's job, though, Carl, or do you think it's really showing that um, there's a role for communication or communicators in this, whether that's a journal's role, whether that's the, the media's role or some 
kind of person that doesn't exist. But is, isn't it a bit hard on researchers to say the type of person who who is maybe a wonderful researcher, very good at methods and um, reporting in a particular style and language, maybe they're just not the right person to be doing that second part, which is saying, I'm going to tell you what this means, which which is more perhaps about interpretation or, or laying it out in user-friendly formats isn't it just asking researchers to be able to be illustrators communicators setting too high a bar so if you come down the high street in oxford which sometime soon you will be able to do again you'll see a blue plaque which says robert hook on the wall and those who've done their chemistry gcse and a level will know about hook's law and boyle's law And Robert Hooke was one of the first fellows of the Royal Society and came up with amazing discoveries. But he was paid to do an experiment each week, which he had to do in a public lecture and explain all of these scientific discoveries to a wide audience. He had a priest who would verify the experiment. And you think of the profound impact of taking research and explaining it to the public. That's what actually I consider is the job of researchers. It's not just to do the research and to talk to a other bunch of researchers. It's to move along the chain of evidence to the people that matter. Now, maybe at the very early in the basic discovery and the basic science, you can make an argument that these people are at a cellular level and they're in discovering targets and nobody quite (laughs) wants to know about that but by the time we're doing systematic reviews and trials it's incredibly important we explain them to the public so again we do need a bit of a sea change in how people try to explore and communicate what they're doing so that it can be understood by a wide audience well not to totally rule out uh, the role of journals from this Helen will say this, that uh, not necessarily everyone is great at communicating. Writing well and speaking well, like you do, Carl, requires practice and uh, a willingness to go out there and do it. If you want to see someone who does communicate well, Henry, who uh, Helen mentioned earlier, uh, is a a professional communicator and he did um, that on the BMJ's Twitter feed, doing a Twitter chat about public and um, patients during... Uh, the COVID pandemic, so I'll link out for people to have a look at. Now I think that brings us to the end of Talk Evidence for this week. As we said, we'll be back next week, hopefully looking at lockdown and some of the worries around second waves. So if you haven't done so, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or pretty much wherever else you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on that. Um, Just before we go, we always want to listen to our listeners. So if you have something to say to us, go to bmj.com slash podcasts where you can find out how to do that. And Carl, we have some feedback for you this week which um, exemplifies this communication that we've been talking about. Yes, uh, this is a classic example of one of the problems. If you do stick your neck out, become a communicator and try and go to a wider audience. There isn't a sort of week where I don't make one mistake or one error. And I thank all the people who, who point them out to me. And Simon pointed out last week I made a major error in terms of test sensitivity and specificity. 
Not difficult because often within these terms you make slight mental errors and get certain aspects wrong. And what I got wrong was just the result from sensitivity. We talked about taking a thousand people with a prevalence of antibodies of 5%. So 50 people in a thousand have antibodies, 950 do not. The sensitivity of the test was 70%, therefore 35 people out of the 50 will have the disease and test positive. And importantly, 15 people with the disease will test negative under that seroprevalence and that result. And I'm illustrating one of my major teaching points there is to not use the languages of false positives and false negatives and throw that in the bin and actually say what it means. It is the people without the disease who test positive. And if I'd have said it that way, it would have been correct. But by using the gobbledygook, sometimes of EBM and test accuracy, I made an error. So sorry, folks. <laughs> so there we go. A thing to stop doing, using gobbledygook. We managed to sneak another one in. Gobbledygook of test accuracy. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks, uh, Carl, for uh, fessing up to that mistake. And thanks, Helen, for joining us this week. It's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care out there.